Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember him only as hip is my guest. Now, to tell you something, people, today was, I mean, yesterday was the first day of spring. And, you know, since I moved back east almost a year ago now, I was looking forward to having a nice spring with the flowers and, you know, baseball starting in eight days. And what do we get? We get eight (laughs) inches of snow. Now, it wasn't normal kind of snow. It, like, started in the morning. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, the the people, the broadcasters are always wrong. So I'm thinking, okay, it might stop. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. Joanne leaves work early. She comes home. I'm sitting there finally. I'm going, you know what? It's going to stop. Does it? We sit there. We're watching TV. I fall asleep at like 10 o'clock. Wake up. Look out the window. It's still snowing. And this morning, I had to shovel. And I'm thinking, wait a second. We live in a condo, so they do they they do all the shoveling, except the plows plow your cars in. And so I'm sitting there going, I did not move back for this. This is not spring. Anyway, we have a great show, and I know my my <laughs> guest my guest is in a warmer climate, I believe. And uh, my guest, you know, he 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 met my good buddy Rich Redmond at a at a rock and roll fantasy camp, and. He is, you know, he sings, you know, for people my age, I'm, I'm 53. He sings one of our iconic songs, our anthems that he not only sang, he wrote. And my guest is Kelly Keegy. How you doing, Kelly? I'm doing great. Cooper, how are you? I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm sitting there. I, I swear to God, and we had talked earlier about heart conditions. I always sit there and I worry when I go out to shovel that they always say that's the time that people have heart attacks is when they shovel. And I sit there and I <laughs> yeah. do it in like. 15-minute intervals, and I'm like, I'm not 80. I should be able to do this, but I got through it. <laughs> no, it's a major workout. I mean, I, I lived in Minnesota for eight years, and, uh, you know, I went and got one of those portable blowers and, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff to help. But, you know, you know, you do have to do shoveling. and It's like going to the gym, man. You, you go there and work out for 45 minutes or an hour. I know. It's crazy. So, <laughs> so wait, what were you doing in Minnesota? Um, I moved out there like in the early '90s. Um, you know, got married to to somebody out there, and uh, you know, so I was out there for eight years, and then I ended up in Nashville after that, and then now I'm in Arizona. I move around a lot. I started my started my career in San Francisco uh, with the band Night Ranger, and um, 20 years there, and then you know, eventually. Um, None of us had to, to live in the same town if we didn't want to, and so I moved out to Minnesota, and you know we had a little break during the during the nineties, um, and then we got back together in like ninety six, ninety seven, and um, been continuing on since then and until now. You know. Now you were born in Glendale, California. Did did you grow up in Southern California? I did. Now, uh, up until I was like eighteen. Now, now, what made you get into music? Was there any, you know, as a kid, were you a big music fan? And what gravitated you to the drums? Because, you know, it's funny. I'm, through Rich, I've met a lot of drummers. And drummers always amaze me because your mind works different than other musicians. Because, I don't know, it's because you have to have more talent because you have to play those different bands. And I read something that said drummers are smarter than most other musicians. I'm not making this up. But that's <laughs> no lie. It was, I think so, it was a drummer that took that out. Yeah.
you know, I heard Elvis, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, and it was just like stuff like that. And you're a sponge at that point. So it's just like, you know, what's this? And then you start to see, you know, to television broadcasts of the Beatles. Of course, you know, that was, that was the, that was the, the last straw right there for me seeing, you know, uh, that band play and how talented they were. And then, you know, also seeing Ringo being a singing drummer, you know, I mean, I, you know, um, across the street was, was one of my good friends who was taking guitar lessons, who was, was learning how to play Beatles songs, surf songs. And, and, uh, you know, I acquired a drum set from his cousin who was an actor in Hollywood and, you know, and I, and then from then on, we just started to practice every day. Boom, boom, you know, pretty soon 10 years and I'm playing in nightclubs, you know, and, and still being a singing drummer. So that was a, a real asset for me. Um, you know, and I, and I consider myself a singer, you know, before even being a drummer. I think that, you know, out of necessity, you know, a lot of times, you know, the, the drummers weren't, weren't a singer, but I, I felt like, you know, I could, I can do both. And I, and I did, you know, I developed both of them at the same time. So it was kind of a unique, you know, challenge for me with, you know, for my brain. I don't know, you know, it's like I did better at that than I did at school. And I think a, a lot of people maybe are, are kind of in the same boat, but um, there you go. Now, when did, when did you figure out you had a good voice? Because, you know, when you're younger, we all want to sing. And that's something we all do want to sing. And unfortunately, a lot of us suck at singing. I'm one of them. I mean, I would love to be a singer but my voice is awful. When did you know that you had a good voice? Did people say, hey, you know, you, you can sing, or did you just did you just know it inherently? No, I, I, I think it was, you know, that feedback from people I was playing with. and Plus, you know, I would go back and forth between uh, playing drums and singing and, and just singing and then having a drummer play. So, like, throughout, you know, junior high school and high school, different bands would come up and somebody, you know, like, a, a good friend of mine, Tony Sisti, who was a fantastic drummer and who is a, a music historian uh, in San Diego, a good friend of mine uh, I grew up with, you know, he um, he was a great musician and he would always surround himself with great musicians and and every so often he would like, you know, ha, you know put together bands and he'd say, hey, you know, I'm going to play, you know, with, with this guy and this guy and this guy and we're going to do these kind of songs. And, you want to like come over and sing? Yes. So I would do that. And then when sitting, when, uh, when Tony wasn't available, you know, like maybe he'd be in another band. Cause you know, you always had two or three outfits that you would play with when you're younger, you know, you just like, you know, you would just like make the rounds and you know, bands would last for a month, you know, and then you'd do something else. So I'd, <clears throat> I'd go back and forth between playing drums and singing and just singing and, uh, you know, so I, I developed both at separate times, you know, and kind of like, you know, um, just had that, that, that time with where I was just singing and then the time where I was playing and singing. So it was kind of interesting to be able to do both and kind of like, you know, like devote time to each one of them. So at the time when, when you know, when music was like, you know, the late 60s, it was like Doors, Hendrix, you know, the cream, so I learned, and, and of course the Beatles, you know, were first influences, you know, then I would, I would learn how to copy those voices. I mean, I was really good at like trying to like those mannerisms, you know, and those, the, the styles that they, 
with McCartney and Lennon and Jim Morrison and Hendrix and and Jack Bruce and Clapton. Those were those were the the big ones for me, and I just tried to copy those voices, and it, because we were covering all the, all that music, so, you know. So so the guys would you know like whoever I was playing with would be like doing those songs, and I would try to like imitate, and then eventually I. I I realized that I, I needed to have my own style and not just sound like somebody else. And so that's when I started to, you know, combine the different influences of those Motown singers, you know, like, I mean, you know, the Four Tops, you know, uh, that, 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 the lead singer in that band had a gruff, really like, you know, the Temptations, you know, um, had, had a really rough, you know, like way of like of putting out that that vocal, and I would just try and copy it, and I would like to get that gravelly, you know, sound, you know, I, I you know, so so it was just basically about trying to get along, you know, in those times when I was actually trying to find my own way, you know. So so you're sitting so there. Imitating was really really made made sense. You know? Now you were you were in LA and when you graduated. Then did you go to San Francisco? What took you up to San Francisco? Um, a band that I was in um, right out of high school um, settled. You know, like my parents um, ended up moving um, out of state up to Oregon. Um, so I, I spent one like one year up there in high school, <clears throat> and there was a band out of Oregon that ended up, you know, they, they, we were, you know, just doing covers and playing six nights a week. We ended up in the Bay Area um, playing clubs. And so I settled there, and then I got into a couple of different bands. It was a band called um, Rags, that was a, a San Francisco um, a club band. And uh, in 1973, and I just ended up being there and then in 1979, I met Jack and Brad um, in the band Rubicon, which was a, a Bay Area kind of funk rock band with uh, Jerry Martini from Sly and the Family Sony's sax player, uh, Max Haskett from Cold Blood, which was another Bay Area band um, that, you know, they're all supported um, at the Fillmore. Those bands were, you know, in the in the early 70s by Bill Graham, you know, and people like that. He, he put those bands like Cold Blood, you know, of course, Sly, you know, were, you know, played those places. And eventually those bands, you know, split up in the late 60s and then became, you know, other bands. And so Jerry Martini, Max Haskett got together and, and formed this band Rubicon, Jack Blades, um, Brad Gillis were, were in the band. And then I came in later uh, as a singing drummer, you know. So, so you join them, and you guys are starting to play the circuit in in San Fran. And now, when do you make the shift from Rubicon to, I believe it was first it was Ranger, then it was Night Ranger. That's correct. I, I, I was like like seventy nine, eighty, um, you know, eighty nineteen eighty. Like I remember May of nineteen eighty, we opened for Eddie Money up in Petaluma, which is north of San Francisco. Um, to do, you know, like our first gig as, as a uh, ranger. And 
And then, you know, like a few months after that, we played, you know, you know, they had like some sort of guitar uh, battle of the bands and stuff like that at that same venue in Petaluma. You know, and so it just continued, and we and when and then we started, you know, we started in in our off time. We would make demos. We found, you know, a manager, you know, uh, you know that that tried to get us some dates, and then he fell out, and then Pat Glasser, our first producer, um, saw us at a showcase in L.A. and uh, that we went from San Francisco to L.A. to do a showcase, and uh, he saw us. And put up money to to uh, make a demo for our first first uh, demos that we circulated in 1980, and eventually got a deal like at 81, 82. You know. Now, what was the people's take on your music? Were they was it easy to get it? I mean, how long did it take you once you got that demo? How long did it take you to get an actual get a deal? Well, I mean, it took a while because. You know, um, of course, in that in that time, like eighty eighty one, you know, we weren't we weren't getting a lot of work, but we were still getting together like once a week and to try and write songs. So some of the songs on the first album ended up being you know there were demos, but um, so it was like I don't know it was like two years between the first gigs that we were doing and the time that we got signed, and. Right there in, in that time, you know, Brad got asked to, to finish out the tour with Ozzy uh, after, you know, um, after the tragic, you know, death of Randy Rose, you know, in the middle of the tour. So in the middle of, you know, middle of that tour, they stopped in New York and Brad went out and auditioned. At that time, Brad and I were like supplementing our in- income with a band called the Alameda All-Stars playing weekends, you know, um, and playing covers. So, so it was just kind of like you know we were out of necessity. We were doing little bands to to make some money, and I was living in San Francisco. Brad was in Alameda. Weekends, I'd come over and play. That was probably for a good six months or a eight month period, and then and and that's when Brad got asked to fly to New York and and audition for Ozzy, and then finish out that tour. You know, the last six months of it, he was playing with Ozzy. But he was just a side guy, you know. He was just a side man there, you know, hired gun. And um, so, you know, during that time when he, you know, when he was out there, we were still shopping that tape that had four songs on it. Um, And four of them, you know, were the song, you know, they were actually masters that ended up being on the first record, you know. Um, I think it was like, Eddie's Coming Out Tonight, Can't Find Me a Thrill, Sing Me Away. Um, and one other song, I can't remember what that third song was, but it was on a demo tape that we were circulating the record companies trying to get a deal. So, and, uh, um, go ahead. No, so when, so when you finally get the deal, is it a sign of relief? I mean, cause you know, you've been waiting. Is there excitement? Is there relief? Is there pressure? What's going through your guys' mind? Cause you already have some songs recorded, which, you know, you say ended up on the album. Well, um, I, I can't remember the exact timeline, but I remember, I remember Eddie Money was getting ready to go out on tour with his first or second album. He's having like a lot, and I and I knew the people and the guys, um, some some of the management uh, people at Bill Graham's office, 
who was being, you know, managing Eddie. And I, and I like, I, I heard about, you know, I was going on a tour. So I was going to be, I was going to go, I was, you know, almost signed up to go and be a roadie <laughs> and go out on tour. You know, I was like, at that time, you know, like, it's like desperate to have a gig, you know, and we weren't doing anything. So it's like about two or three weeks right there where I like called up Bill Graham's office, talked to somebody and said, Hey, you know, here's this tour. Oh, great. We'll put you on the list, you know? And then I, and then we get this call from Pat Glasser saying, I think we got a deal. Um, you know, uh, Bruce Bird, who was like the head of Boardwalk at the time, um, you know, Neil Bogart was was the president and the owner of, of uh, Boardwalk Records, was in the hospital with cancer. But he had taken our demo tapes in there. I, I wish I knew the timeline because I knew, you know, I, I heard about it later, but it was like Bruce Bird took the, our demo tape in there because Neil, you know, was sick was sick with cancer, but he was like, Hey, what's going on with the label? You know, I want to hear what, you know, what some of the bands you're thinking about signing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, of course, they had Joan Jett. They had uh, Frankie and the Knockouts, which was an uh, East Coast band, and some other acts. And so Bruce took our tape in, and Neil, you know, um, being sick in bed, like, you know, I guess he brought him a cassette and said, you know, hey, this is one of the bands I'm considering. What do you think? like you know heard some of the stuff and said you know i like this band you know what are you going to do with them and, and it was like you know bruce was like saying well i'm i'm seriously thinking about signing them so then he got back to past glasser and said i think we want to sign you you know um and so then after that it got the wheels rolling to you know get pat to go in there and have meetings and then eventually you know like we got the deal through um you know boardwalk and then we had to scramble because brad came back from that tour and it was like okay we got you know we have like i i guess a month to get this record going you know so then we all moved down there to to you know hollywood and stayed in apartments and started making this right you know making the rest of the record you know, the, the rest of the 10 songs that were going to be on Dawn Patrol. So we just like, you know, went down there and camped out and started doing it. And we had, you know, we went into some rehearsals and we had a bunch, you know, we had some songs. And so we went in the back room where we were actually going to be recording and we started to re rehearse and, uh, and put together the rest of the songs for Dawn Patrol. And then some of the songs came up, um, and we had left over, and then we, you know, we wrote, you know, Don't Tell Me You Love Me, and um, I think, um, shoot, I can't remember what, so, you know, some of the other songs came up at the last minute, so we, you know, we had, we put together the rest of the songs in those rehearsals in the studio, and then we just mic'd up that room and just went in there. It was a big, huge, big um, storage room in the back, at Alan Zent's um, recording studio right off of uh, Santa Monica and Orange Street in Hollywood. Oh, wow. I know and the area. Were... <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 I know it's, I'm giving you a lot of information right now. No, it's, it's, a, it's, still, it's still a bad area. <laughs> it hasn't changed. You think after all the oh, years. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. 
I remember they did a sting in the parking lot <laughs> while we were doing with all the um, the guys that were pro- you know they were prostitutes on the street there, and they did a sting in our parking lot. <laughs> um, and we kept seeing these cops come in and drop people off, and then they get arrested, and they t- <laughs> it was like they must have arrested eight or ten guys off the street. Santa Monica, why were you like in the middle of doing that recording? We're like, what the hell's going on? You know? <laughs> like, like, we did, this isn't what to be a rock star is about. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so you sit there, and now, now your first single off that is "Don't Tell Me You Love Me." Did you guys pick that single, or did the record company pick that? I think it was the record company, um, all and and all of us, and of course they didn't want to just like you know steamroll over us, but. You know, Bruce Bird was, you know, possible, you know, like Pat Glasser, producer, you know, the, um, um, all those, all those folks had, um, you know, had a decision in it. And, and of course they, you know, we, you kind of know when you're in there, you know, we, we knew that we had four or five songs that were potential, you know, singles off that record. So it was, um, you know, Sing Me Away was, the, was one young girl. In Love was another one that they had uh, put up for singles. And in those days, they would throw out four or five songs, you know, to radio and, and, and let them have feedback, too. And, and maybe even play some of those songs, you know, late at night. And they would get they would get people calling in going, I like this song or I don't like this song or whatever. So that's how they did it back then is that it was old school. They would, like, kind of, like, blanket it with, you know, three or four songs and maybe... Maybe you know um, AOR Radio would be playing uh, four or five, uh, four or five songs. I mean, I know they were playing, you know, like Thrill off of that record that you know Eddie's coming out tonight got played. You know, Sing Me Away definitely got played and became a single. You know, but um, you know that's that's how things went back then. Is they just tried to get as much feed, feedback as possible now you, radio. You, you record, the, you know, the first single, Don't Tell Me You Love Me, that becomes a video. How do you do, how much do you think video, and at that time MTV, helped in your success? Because, you know, as I, I've told guests before, we were, you know, I, I grew up back east, and we would hear bands we never really heard because we would watch MTV. But did you think, you know, when you guys were recording a video that would have an impact on your band? You know, <clears throat> no, I mean, you know, and the, and the factors just happened to roll into place all at the same time. MTV was like in their second year or something of broadcasting. And so they had very little material, you know. Um, I think the first one was like Video Killed a Radio Star. I mean, it was like, you know, they were playing that one, you know, like, like five times an hour. And they were just screaming to record companies like, we need material, you know. Um, you know, so so they as much as you could give them for you know for promotion, the better. You know, and so and at that time, you know, uh, record companies were like going, you know, I think, you know, this this, this you know might be a, a a medium that we that we need to exploit. You know, I mean, and so we went in and made made a video, um, and it, you know it was like there was no budget. It was absolutely no budget. They didn't even have, you know, I don't even think they put that stuff like, you know, like that in in record contracts back then about video promotion and and about, you know, vid- videos in general, you know, like any anything. So it was a, a very new kind 
kind of like frontier. So when when we made that video, we were like we were like you know trying to it was I mean if you go back and look at that video, you can see just how you know handmade some of that <laughs> crap was. You know like the the, the train tracks and the and the uh, and the and the the old style like train track light you know uh, traffic light and it was all sorts of stuff in there that was just like you know covered with aluminum foil and, <laughs> and crap you know it was like what you know but but we didn't know what we were doing we just we you know we just knew that you know we were just using it as a tool to get it, our name out there and then suddenly it was like we gave them this video and they were playing it like three three times an hour four times an hour and suddenly like everybody's like you know recognizes rec- recognizing us on the streets in you know in iowa right. <laughs> you know, what is that we like? We're like, like, what the hell is going on? I'm just trying to do my laundry, and this guy's coming up to me going, I saw you on TV. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> it's amazing because we did all watch it. It's so funny. So so you sit there, that the album's doing well, so you guys, you start going on a tour to open for people, or what happened? Well, um, you know, we got tours with Kiss, with Sammy Hagar on that first um, album, and it really made a difference because, you know, we were playing to, you know, 15,000 people a night as opposed to playing in, you know, in clubs and, and, you know, but we did that too. So we would play sometimes like, you know, 14 days straight, you know, just to, just to keep it rolling, you know, and pay for everything. So, you know, after those tours, we come back home and we were still, you know, working Dawn Patrol and they're still, you know, like getting singles out there. And we come back home well, with Sammy Hagar, we're, we're playing our hometown and we're like, you know, Oh my God, this is amazing. And, and then we get the, the call from Bruce bird from the boardwalk saying the record company's, you know, going bankrupt. They're, they're going under. And so I got to come up and have a, like an emergency meeting with you guys. We got to figure out what we're going to do. You know? And we're like, Oh my God, you know, this is the end of our career. This is going to be the end of it. And then we got six months, you know, or whatever it was of, of touring and, and out there. So we come back home. He comes up. Bruce, Bruce said he comes up, spends the night. We're like up all night, like trying to figure out what we're going to do. He goes, he goes, um, Irving Azoff has just taken over MCA. You know, he's ahead. I went over and had a meeting with him, you know, and we're going to, we're going to, make a new deal with them to, you know, to keep, keep things rolling with, you know, he sees the numbers you guys have sold, you know, a half a million records or whatever. Oh my God, we got to, you know, we got to go in in two weeks after we've been on the road for six months and try and make a new record, you know? And so that's what we did. He made a deal with Irving, you know, we went in the studio, we went back down with Pat Glasser, back into, into you know, Alan Zemps again, started rehearsing for the second record again and, and put songs together. We had some material left over again from the, for the first album. We had Sister Christian left over. We had some other things. We just basically, you know, like Jack, you know, um, had, had ideas and we went in and 
you know, it was like how we do things now. It's like, you know, yeah, I have a chorus, you know, here's, here's how it goes, you know. Oh, I, well, well, let's make a verse out of this part and this part. And, this, and it's just five or six days, and you got a bunch of songs, and you got a bunch of material, and you write everything on the spot. And he goes home, and he writes lyrics, or I go home, and I write something, and I come back with it, you know. But, but that's how we did it. You know, we just ended up doing it like in two or three weeks, put the material together and just went and recorded that thing. Second album. Now, was was Sister Christian a collaborative effort or was that just you doing everything? I mean, I basically had, you know, we were we were rehearsing that thing during the, the first album rehearsals, you know. So, I, you know, I just basically had Motor and What's Your Price for Flight and then the verse was Sister Christie. You know, blah, 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 you know, like you hear people writing stuff and it's just nonsense, you know, like I just watched, you know, the making of uh, of the uh, the Black Sabbath album and, and you know, they, they played tracks from Ozzy and he's like singing, uh, you know, Paranoid and he's going, and that's what that's what I was doing, you know, and and I was just like, you know, like that. And then motor and what's your, what's your price for flight? You know, and and that's all I had. And I had those chords, you know, C, you know, F, G, you know, and I had the, all that stuff. And so we, we just basically put that thing together. I had the verse and I had, you know, I had that stuff, but I didn't have it arranged. And we got together and then when we, we you know, we were rehearsing at his band, you know, we thought, well, where are we going to go with the solo? And, you know, of course, we came up with this whole idea of, you know, like sitting on on the F and, and suspension and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, it was like, you know, I had a lot of the stuff. And, Jack, you know, of course, Jack was like, what are you singing? You know, Sister, Sister Christian? You know, I was like, no, I'm saying Sister Christie. I'm singing about my sister, you know, or her growing up and this whole thing. I'll be like, you know, coming of age and all that. And and he's like, I thought you were saying Christian. It kind of like a light bulb went, went out and we all went, Christian, that sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> so we just, we just adapted that, you know, and, and um, just, you know, that's how we would do things with the band. Somebody would like throw out something and, Oh, that sounds good. Let's try that. You know, so the first three albums were done like that. You know, well, you know, I mean, of course, you know, Jack Blaze is, is, you know, he, you know, he wrote a lot of that stuff, you know, um, and brought like chorus ideas and 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 then we would put stuff together. You know, and, but he was the main writer. But I, you know, I snuck one in there. <laughs> it was great. Well, you, you... <laughs> that sing me away. You know, I mean, I had a I had a good opportunity with some great musicians to bring ideas in and have them be, you know, finished off as songs. You know. Well, you you know what's funny about Sister Christian, and I think we had talked about this earlier about you being a drummer who sang. I think a lot of us, you know, because we weren't used to watching videos, a lot of us watched that video and we're like, wait a second, wait, there's a there's the drummer singing, and I think that really stuck in people's minds. It's wild. I mean, you know, it's like that doesn't happen too often. There's only a handful of, you know, 
um, guys out there. I mean, Don Henley. I mean, of course, like I, I think we mentioned earlier, Ringo singing, you know, singing boys, you know, back in the day. And I thought, I thought, this is unbelievable. This guy's singing. And then, and then when they recorded live at the Hollywood Bowl, you know, actually hearing them do it live, you know, and I, and I was like, I was stunned, you know, because he was playing um, amazing drums and singing, you know, in front of 18,000 people. And I thought, you know, that I can do that. And so later on, when it came up, you know, I was always a great asset to, to bands being able to actually sing and play, you know. So, and it's a great challenge for me, you know. So I, I love the idea of, like, going, okay, this could be really complicated to sing this thing, but if I simplify my drum part and split up the air <laughs> to sing and play, because I love, I love playing hard, uh, you know, I can pull this thing off. So that's it's always been a great thing for me. So now, now, then, you know, that, that album's a hit, so now you guys start headlining tours. What's the difference from going from an opener to the headliner, besides, you know, probably money and people coming to see you, but but is there a certain swagger you have to have on stage? Because I'm sure, like, any band probably wants to try to blow off the headliner just because they want to be a headliner. You know, um, and that I think that was probably uh, part of it, you know, is that kind of that energy, like, when we were opening, we we always thought, you know, it's a great slot to have because, you know, you don't have to have another hour's worth of material, you know? I mean, when you're an early band, you're like, okay, you know, we could play our best songs in 45 minutes, but, you know, if you're a headliner, you gotta, you gotta bring an hour and a half to two hours worth of material in there and, and somehow keep the audience interested. And so what are you going to do? And this and that, I mean, once we, once we jump to headliner, I mean, you know, it was, it was tough because, you know, it was like at the, you know, we only had two albums under our belts at that point, you know? So when we got to Seven Wishes, you know, it was like, it was like, okay, how are we going to put this together? And, and, you know, a lot of times too, we did co-headlining stuff back in the day. So it was, you know, it was, it wasn't two hours, you know, it would be like, an you know, 75 or or an hour and a half if we were headlining. But, you know, you have to pace yourself, man. Stamina is the thing, you know. Um, and it's all about, like, you know, uh, keeping, you know, it's like it's like being an athlete, you know. It's like, it's like you keep that last, those last 20 minutes for the real payoff and the punch, you know. So, and that, it's not like you're holding back. But at the same time, you have to build that strength. You know, you have to, you have to really be kind of almost trained. You know, but when you're younger, you have all that extra headroom. You know, to be able to like get to that last twenty minutes where you're like, where you're like doing those last three big or three or four big songs, and you're and you're bringing it all the way a hundred percent. You know. Now, when you're performing back then, and when you perform now, you've had so many hits. Back then, what would you choose for your encore? Was it what? Because you had because you you're going to do an encore. Did you guys have one go-to encore all the time, or would you mix it up? We kind of we kind of like you know made it up um, as we went along. But sometimes uh, you know, we um, there was a song we used to use called um, 
which we don't play anymore. And um, um, it's called At Night She Sleeps. And it has a great, great, like, you know, like intro to it. And and we used to use that. We used to use, you know, um, you know, of course, we would, you know, save Sister Christian, you know, for that encore, um, you know, so we wouldn't put it in the set. Um, you know, at that point, it was, you know, fastly becoming like the biggest hit we had. And then, you know, and then we would have new songs in there that were being played on the radio from Seven Wishes. So, you know, and then as it continued, you know, we would just, we would kind of go with the with the flow, but we would see what would be what was being played on the radio and kind of weigh those odds. I mean, it's really it's difficult to think about how to pace a set that's an hour and a half or two hours. You know, I mean, like now we have you know we have those hill, hills and valleys built into the set. You know, where we like to play a couple of you know uh, acoustic things in the middle that kind of bring it, you know, down, but they're still recognizable songs. We put, you know, like a, we use Damn Yankees um, in, in that section. We put Goodbye in there, you know. Sometimes we throw in like a, you know, a song that's maybe lesser known but was played on the radio um, called Let Them Run, which is a kind of an acoustic thing. And so, so nowadays, you know, we get to kind of, kind of be a little bit more, you know, uh, creative with it but still try and keep the interest in the audience. It, you know, it, it, it is about that. It's about, you know, those people that come out to pay good money to come see you. You want to make them happy, and, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, and make them feel like, you know, it was worth it that they came out. And, geez, you know, I, I'm, we're so lucky to, you know, be out here 35 years later 35 years. I mean, that's unbelievable. Cooper, I mean, who who does that? You know, I mean, we're still around and we're so fortunate that we can still go out and play to people that keep, you know, coming out to see us, so we're just going to keep playing. You know? Now, it's funny, you know, you the, the record industry's changed. I know you guys were on, you know, you were on top and then music changes and you go back and forth and you guys broke up. What is it like when you break up? I mean, when, you know, at that first time, because you're, as you said, it's 35 years, you guys are still playing together. But what is it like at the first breakup? Like, do you guys feel depressed or, or what happened? Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, you kind of lost like that because, you know, basically, you know, we grew up together. You know, we were spending more time, uh, you know, with the band than we were with our families, you know, trying to keep this career uh, rolling. And then, and then, of course, when it stopped, there was a release of like, you know, I'm really glad, you know, it's like I, I, I had some addiction problems, you know, back then. So it was really nice to kind of get off the road and get myself, you know, straight, you know, and, and sober. So that's what I did for the first basically three years, man. I, you know, I, I took care of myself. And so it was really, it was really a, a welcome kind of like break for me. You know, Jack, um, you know, continued on and went, you know, with the damn Yankees and they had great success. You know, they sold like three million records or something like that. And it was, you know, it, uh, I think it was three or four years that they did that. And but, um, you know, when we came back together, that was another great buildup to something, you know, that was a it was kind of a void at that point for those three years. It was really nice to be able to come back 
and it was like look each other in the eye and go god you know we missed each other we missed playing with each other we we kind of like came up in the ranks and and learned how to play our instruments you know um together you know and you know out there in front of people it's kind of what you do you kind of learn how to play your instruments like in front of 20,000 people you're still <laughs> you know still trying to to get better and, and improve um so once we got back together in 96 97 um we you know we did the first thing we did was we went to japan because they were screaming to have night ranger you know back again and and um, so we went back over there, and we've been going over there every two years since then. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, I, I mean, when you come back together after the, after a, a thing like that, it was it was a nice break, you know, to have. But we but we really miss each other. Now, when you, you said when you took the three years off, you know, because you had some substance problems and stuff like that, how do you get used to not performing, though? Because it's something that, you know, it's true, you needed the break, and we all want to get healthy, and thank God you did. But it's a matter of, it's been in you for so long that you've been just doing this grind, and it's been, you know, loving it. How do you adjust? Like, what is a, what, what, do you, what would you do to make up for that void of performing? Well, I mean, you, you keep playing. You keep practicing. I mean, you know, you just... You just kind of keep that up, but but you know there there is a, a monotonous side to um, uh, touring, you know, which is you know that whole grind of like you know traveling, uh, sound check, performance, um, you know, recovering, traveling. You know, you just, it's just like a, a cycle. I mean, at that point, we you know some of our tours are eighteen months. You know, they wouldn't end. You know, you, that's what you did, you know. So when we got to 89, it was it was kind of a welcome time to like, okay, um, you know, we were burning the candle. I mean, like, let's face it. I mean, we were, you know, we were pushing it. And, and uh, so it was really nice to have that kind of like focus on, okay, I need to get, you know, get myself healthy. I need to get, you know, so I was exercising. I was running. I was practicing. I was writing songs to other other people. You know, um, during that that time, you know, we, you know, Brad and I got together and did uh, the Mojo album um, with Gary Moon and 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 him and myself. And um, uh, I, I'm sorry, and, uh, and Brad Gellis, uh, uh, Gary Moon, and myself. And so we did that album, and it was a it was a it was a really fun album to do. It took a while for us to get to the point of making an album, um, and uh, but once we did, it was kind of like there was needed to be the next chapter, and which happened, you know, in '97. That's when the original band got back together again. Um, so I did have a lot of chances and a lot of opportunities to play. I mean, once you know, once the band broke up. Um, you know, in 1992, we started jamming. Brad and I started jamming with uh, the Gary Moon. Uh, um, a lot of people called it Moon Ranger, but it was like kind of the mojo period of the of, of the band. So we were playing, you know, maybe off the radar, but we were playing a lot. Um, 
as Night Ranger. And then we got a deal with uh, uh, Feeding Off the Mojo album, um, the, the, and we did it as Night Ranger, Brad and myself. And we went out and probably played a good two years, solid, man, playing clubs and playing festivals and, and all sorts of things. So we got a lot of playing during that time off. Um, so and then when, um, when, when we got back together in 97, Brad and I were really ready to come into the, that thing and bring it, you know, bring 100% into it. Now, you, you've also, in your career, you've re recorded two solo albums. What is that like? When you've been with a band and you know, you've been with the guys and they're your boys, you've been playing for a long time, what made you decide to put together a solo album? Was it something that you had started thinking about doing earlier in your career or just something where you said, now's the time? You know, I never thought that I would do solo albums, you know, because I always thought I'd be in a band. And I, always, I always liked contributing to a team like that. And when you're doing a solo album, you're doing you're making all the decisions, you know, which is which is something you know you're you're under the pressure to do, you know, like like make that right decision. Okay, well how how good is that song? You know, how good is that production? How good is that performance? It's just all you, you know, like and and how it came about was was uh, Jim Peterick, a really good friend of mine. It's so funny. He just hit me up this morning about a song that we had wrote um, uh, maybe five years ago. He's doing another solo album. I don't know if you know Jim Peterick, but he was with Survivor. He was in the Eyes of March in, early on in his career in the, in the early 70s. So he was in Survivor, and he wrote all, you know, or, or co-wrote a, a lot of the songs that Survivor did. Okay. Um, and also he, um, he contributed... Uh, to 38 special uh, uh, catalog and wrote with Don, Don Barnes and they, they wrote a lot of these big songs that 38 special did in the 80s and stuff like that. So he's like a well-seasoned songwriter. And he came to me and said, hey, you know, I'm doing this solo album. I want you to, I want you to sing a, a song on there. And then I went up there and, and, and contributed to that. That was a song called Long Road Home. And I uh, was on, on one of his solo albums. And then, and then he said, well, you know, he, he is such a great producer. I don't know if people, people should probably do know that Jimmy Peterick is a great producer as well as a songwriter. Why are you doing a solo album for this um, label um, in Italy called Frontiers? And he goes, so, you know, what do you think about that? I mean, like Serafino hit me up and said, you know, I, I like that song "Long Road Home" on your solo album. What if, what if you do a, you know, what if you do an album with Serafino? So I got a hold of Serafino, and he said, "I want you to do a solo album. What do you think?" You know, and I was like, "God, I've never thought about being a solo artist." <laughs> so I I went to Jimmy, and I said, "Would you want to like write this album with me?" And I got a few songs here with. Um, Another friend of mine, Bruce Geich, who's a great songwriter I've known for years and years, and um, we did a, a we did a um, an album called King of Hearts back in '89 uh, with uh, uh, Tommy Thunderbird and, and Bruce and George Hawkins and myself. And then, so anyway, I'm, I'm kind of going backwards. Um, but but how I got to this point of doing a solo album is that you know, you know Frontiers 
you know, uh, wanted to do it. I got a hold of Jimmy Peterick, and we, of course, you know, like started. I went up to his house in Chicago, and we wrote like, like three or four great songs. You know, the first you know two or three days we were together, and he, he you know, he he, um, he's one of those guys where you come in, and he's got an idea. You know, he he comes in prepared, like, you know, he thinks about the artist he's going to write for, and he goes. Oh yeah, man. Maybe that maybe this would work, and this and where. And he starts like putting putting aside these little kernels, you know, these little bits, a, a chorus, you know, and a lyric. And then and then when you get together with him, he you know he shows them to you. But so the, anyway, so that's how we got the first album together. We started doing it. I basically recorded it with Brian Bart in in Minneapolis, and he re- like basically played on everything he played brian bart's an amazing um engineer but uh, a great musician uh, uh, as well so you've, you've done a solo album you know you played side projects and then night ranger you know you've uh, done a few albums in the last few years your last album was uh, don't let up how did that feel did you how do you feel about that album I love that record. I mean, in the, in the last three records we've been doing, uh, as is uh, Brad and, and Jack and myself, we get in we get in a room, we set up, you know, we just like the, the the as a trio, and we come in with you know, and we just start jamming. We just start like playing feels and different ideas. You know, all of us you know can play different styles um, pretty much. You know, and and that's how we've done like somewhere in california high road and and this new record don't let up we just get in a room with no songs and we're like oh man i got an idea just because we know each other and we've been playing together so long we're like yeah this sounds like a chorus you know um yeah go from c to this and that and you know and here's the riff to start you know and then we just we just start doing it we we set out like a week and the first four or five days we'll have you know some some good ideas to put down and record, you know, and so we'll put them down, you know, now how, just as rough ideas. How has your writing styles changed in your words and as in the content itself, not how you're doing it because you explained that, but how has your, how have you grown as a songwriter in what you're conveying? Well, I think that, you know, um, good songwriters got to look around and, and uh, see what's, you know what's changing in music, and maybe use some of those influences. You know, and I think it's really important to, you know, to <clears throat> to actually know in your heart, you know, what what makes up a good song. You know, and and it's basically your opinion. But but I think after so many years, you just you just kind of have a good feel of of like you know oh, I want to take something from you know I heard this thing on the radio and I. Maybe maybe it's an old song or a new song, you know. But you you just keep tapping into those influences and keep keep that open, you know. Keep your, keep an open heart and an open mind to, to new stuff, and and whatever the the uh, the language might be out there, what people are talking about or whatever, try and try and incorporate you know some of that stuff in into the writing, you know. And that's what we do. Now, you know, you've been, as you said, 35 years, you said, and it's so funny, a whole new group of film, the, the young film kids were introduced to your band in 
Boogie Nights. Did did they did you know that that song in that scene would be so impactful? And did you feel like you got some new fans off of that? Oh yeah, absolutely got new fans. And uh, you know that that was such a cult film, it still is. And and uh, and we you know, but you never know. I mean, you just never know. I mean, like we didn't know that that song was going to blow up. We didn't know that. Don't tell me you love me. And you know, and and Rocket America and some of some of the songs that you know they're our big hits um, would be, you know, you just write a song and you just try and put everything into it. And you're, you're just basically, you're hoping for the best, you know, and hoping, hoping that the, the person that's going to be on the other end of that, whether it's the fans or the record company are going to hear that spark that you initially put to that song, you know? So you never know. I mean, you put it out there, who, who knew that they were that they were going to use that song in the way they did in that movie? You know, I mean, it's like we were we were like shocked. You know, for for one thing, we I, I think in the eighties, I think we were in that living room in, in the Hollywood Hills. I think I know that dude. I mean, that coke dealer. <laughs> I think I still have his number. <laughs> I'm kidding. You know what I'm saying? It's like when we saw that clip, we were like. Holy shit! That's that's what's his name. Yeah. You know. <laughs> oh God! You know, I mean, those times were wild, and you just kind of like what you know. We were flying by the sea of your pants, but yeah, you know, you just never know about about how things are gonna go with music. You know, you never know. I mean, I bet if you talk to every single uh, artist, you know, they they were just like you know they they just come in there with a with a an open heart and an open mind, like I said earlier, and and you just hope that you know that somebody's going to get it. You know. Now you guys have been on tour. You're going out still. What's it like when you go out now? I mean, you know, do you do you sit there and play these songs and you get like, oh, we're going to play this again, or do you always try to increase the energy because you've played it so many times and you just know it so well? Well, I mean, I mean, there's some of that, you know, um, that gets you through the, the, the times when you're playing four and five shows, you know, in a row, there's a little bit, you know, but you tap into the initial, um, I, I, I believe, and, and I know that from playing with these guys for so long that they do the same thing. You know, we tap into that, that initial energy and that's that fire that, that we had when we were first playing and we when and we play off of it, you know, we we want to have a good time. We want you know even when you're tired, that's what keeps you going is that positive you know energy. Like okay, let's go out there and show these people a good time. You know they're coming out to see you. They don't know that you just flew in from California to Iowa and you're coming in and, hit, and hitting the ground running. It's like <clears throat> why do they need to know that? They you know they. They want to come and, and you know and 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 see what you got you know and so we're gonna we're gonna give it to them you know uh, and I thought I thought that's that's the kind of band that I want to go see when you know it's like I went and saw McCartney two years ago and it, and I was like stunned at how good he was I mean it was like it was like oh my god talk about somebody that's been around for a long time and I was like shit this guy is killing it. And that's how I want to be. I want to set that bar, and on that, that's where we're going to go. And all of us are like that. 
The whole band is like that. Kerry Kelly um, is the newest guitar player. Eric Levy's been with us on keyboards for for uh, for God, I want to say eight years now. And and then and Brad, Jack, and myself. I mean, we we need that to play off of. We need that really positive, like you know, go getter kind of like let's 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 bring it all. You know. Now, when you're touring now, do you will you play stuff off? Don't let up. Yeah, um, we do. We we start to set off with with one of it, and then uh, um, we we start to set off with uh, with somehow some way, and then um, depending depending on how long we have, we'll put in like truth in the in the set, um, which is one of our favorites. Um, yeah, and then you know also we you know we put some songs in like uh, somewhere in California. Once in a while we do a, you know like growing up in California, or we do um, High Road. You know, from the from the last record. So, yeah. So, I mean, we try and keep that new stuff flowing because that's what we're about. You know, we're about like not just standing still. You know, we got to keep moving. It's like a shark. <laughs> right. <laughs> I got I got one more question for you, and I think you'll appreciate this because you've been playing live a long time. You know, back in the day. If you saw Night Ranger and Sister Christian came on, you'd pull out the lighter because it's a lighter song. There's some songs that are just lighter songs. What is it like now <laughs> when you look out into the audience and it's cell phones or people who actually have apps that are lighter on their cell phone? Does it seem a little yeah. bit? Does it seem weird to you at all? Uh, you know what I find funny is that um, when you're talking about that, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's great. I mean, you know, I, I mean, whatever tools they need, I don't want them to start their friends hair on fire. <laughs> so use the app. But, um, what, the, the one thing that I think is funny about this, about people recording you on their cell phones, it's like, I want to, I want to go stop, enjoy the performance. <laughs> Remember it with your, you know, with, with your brain Use your brain. Don't record. The, every time I record something on my cell phone that's like a band playing, it sounds like crap. It's all distorted, and it's like it's not anything like what they think. Right. It's like put the cell phone down and enjoy the performance. I, I, feel, I, feel the, I feel the same way because there's nothing like – and they always put it on Facebook, and it looks like crap, and you're like, okay, we knew you were at the concert. You could have just checked in and said you're at the concert. And then it's annoying when you're standing behind <laughs> someone and they have their damn cell phone up and they're recording it. I'm the same way. I'm like, just enjoy the music. You can go watch YouTube. You can Google probably tomorrow. You can get a clip from this concert. It's just, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I wanna, it's all like – <laughs> and some some dude yelling like woo you're like oh my god and he's whistling so anyway, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on today kelly um now are, are you on twitter um i'm not i'm not so active on twitter um Social media um, uh, is, is probably more like uh, Facebook. Once in a while, I put stuff up there, but there's you know we got Facebook, um, Instagram, you know for for that kind of stuff. But Twitter, you know, I haven't explored it too much, and you know, I'm sure you if you go to my Twitter account, you'll be like, oh, he hasn't posted anything for six months, right, or a year and a half, you know. <laughs> but 
I'm pretty much old school. I just kind of like roll roll with it, right? You know? <laughs> but I do use Facebook once in a while, stuff like that. Well, people, people check out Kelly and also check out Night Ranger, and they're on they're going tour right now. And so just check them out, Google them, look at their old videos, buy some of their albums. You'll you'll enjoy the music and listen to their new album. It's very good. Uh, people follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Also, my Instagram is at Cooper Talk One. Website CooperTalk.net. I have over 680 episodes up. Where you can also email me Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Tell me what guests you want. And also, don't forget my other website. You know, when I had that heart problem a few years ago, I wrote a cookbook. So go to StopTheSalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes, easy to make. No pictures of the food to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. It's not going to freak you out. And they're easy, and they're cheap. Love it. It will get you healthy. So you can get it at StopTheSalt.com. Or you can go to Amazon, you can get it. But if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I sign it. And I'll make more money. So why give? Why cut out the middleman? Go to stopthesalt.com. So people, check out Night Ranger. Check out me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only sip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>